the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 2. We've been, we've been uh, looking at Luther in depth and uh, hopefully with great profit. Um, the danger when we look at Luther in those glory days, if you will, is to become infatuated with the creature because he was, as Melanchthon said, larger than himself at this time. And uh, the, the danger is to put too much stock in, in the creature rather than in our great and glorious God. Um, and so this text reminds us of this. And this morning we will be reminded of it because if we've seen Luther at his best, this morning we'll see him at his worst. Uh, and I think it's appropriate that we should should take a little bit of, of time to see this in one of the great episodes of the Reformation, that is uh, the Colloquy of Marburg, which we'll be looking at this morning, spending most of our time on that, certainly the last half of the class. Uh, I just want us to read one verse. It's the last verse in Isaiah chapter 2, 222. This, this whole chapter is fantastic. It's a great, great chapter. Um, but I just want to read the last verse. Cease ye from man, whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Let's pray. Father, we meet this morning in the name of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Bless our time together as we think again about your great works in this world, yes, through men. But help us always to remember that apart from your Spirit descending from the exalted Christ, we would have nothing of you in this world, nothing at all. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, by whom we cry out truly, Abba, Father. And it's in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray and we ask for your presence with us this morning, in this hour, and certainly in the hour to come, as your word is expounded. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were in the, uh, the, the city in Switzerland of Basel, the home of the world-famous humanist Erasmus, and uh, who was a Dutchman, by the way, Erasmus of Rotterdam, and uh, it was the hometown of the cathedral preacher, Johann Echolampadius, who we met. Uh, I should say whom we met. And uh, we saw the arrival of William Farrell there to that city. So we saw those three men, Echolampadius, and on either side of him, if you remember, Farrell, the evangelist, and Erasmus, the humanist. And they clashed. Uh, fairly violently, I say violently, I mean verbally, not physically, uh, very much at odds with one another. But then we moved on from there to Erasmus's uh, diatribe on free will, which he wrote against Martin Luther. And there was even a greater and more violent verbal and theological clash then between Erasmus and Luther, who, in response to, the, to Erasmus's diatribe, had written The Bondage of the Will, on The Bondage of the Will, which 
which one of the, the Reformation historians called the finest and most powerful soli deo gloria ever sung during the period of the Reformation. So that's what we looked at last week. This morning, we're going to shift from Basel, out of Basel, Switzerland, uh, to Strasbourg, which is on the Rhine River on the border of France and Germany, just about 80 miles or so north of Basel. So it's right up the Rhine River, and then you hit Strasbourg. Uh, we're, we're going to look, uh, spend just a, 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 a few minutes there, and then move to Spire in Germany, and then finally Marburg, which is also in Germany. So those are the three cities we'll look at this morning and introduce another uh, new person to the mix of reformers that, that, that uh, we have been learning about over these several weeks. So we're, we're centering uh, geographically there in, in Marburg. Uh, chronologically, we're, we're largely in the year 1529. You can see on your timeline there, 1529, the, the Second Diet of Spire and the Protestation and then the Marburg Colloquy. Those are the two events, and mainly, as I said, the Marburg Colloquy, which we'll look at this morning. All right, so toward the end of 1524, uh, just when Erasmus had completed his diatribe against Luther, uh, he also persuaded the city council of Basel to expel Farrell. We already know that he didn't like Farrell, uh, he was working on the leaders in the city council and finally persuaded them that um, this uh, seditious scurvy, as he called the French exiles, including uh, uh, Farrell, that uh, he, he was not to be entertained in the city. And so Farrell was expelled and immediately he departed. He journeyed up the Rhine, as I intimated a minute ago up to the city of Strasbourg, which was the city of Martin Bucer. So Martin Bucer is, is a new figure that we're interested in, and, and he'll, he'll uh, become a little bit larger, particularly in reference to uh, John Calvin, who we're going to come to beginning next week. So Martin Bucer was the leading preacher now in Strasbourg. But let's just back up for a moment and say a thing or two about Bucer. He had been a Dominican monk. He was born, I, I think, in the year 1491. So he was about oh, eight years younger than Luther, seven years long, younger than Zwingli, but he was older than Melanchthon by about a half a dozen years or so. So Martin Bucer had been a Dominican monk. In 1518, uh, Luther came to Heidelberg, Germany. We didn't talk about the Heidelberg dis disputation when we were talking about his confrontations with the papacy. But uh, in the year 1518, one of those decisive moments was the Heidelberg disputation. Uh, Bucer was in Heidelberg at that time, a young man in his mid-twenties. And he saw Luther there for the first time as Luther was making a defense between, uh, before the monks within the Catholic Church. Bucer was overwhelmed by the spiritual logic and force of Martin Luther. Uh, Dabigny, the historian, says that it was here that Bucer had the first gleams of the doctrine of grace, uh, which were diffused through his whole soul when he heard, heard uh, Martin Luther. Uh, he chased Luther down after the disputation and uh, spent some time with him in private. 
and asked him all these kind of questions, objections that he had uh, to the doctrines of grace as Luther was, was defending them, that from his, his sense of things, it's like, well, this doesn't make sense. How can this be? Uh, and he said, every objection, he said, that I presented to Luther, he answered with such force and logic uh, and spiritual power that I, I, he, he, just, he just dissolved all of my objections, which I thought at first were so great. So, Bucer and Luther then began a friendship from that point onward, Bucer being the disciple, in a sense, of Luther. Well, so now by 1524, six years later, he was in Strasbourg, and this is when Farrell showed up uh, in 1524, towards the end of the year. Uh, Bucer, I should also add, was at Worms at the Diet of Worms, watching Luther make his spectacular defense there. So he had been following Luther ever since he met him in 1518 and was converted to the evangelical faith. Well, by the end of the next year, 1526, so Farrell is with Bucer in Strasbourg. By the end of the next year, someone else appeared. Uh, having quitted Moe, that evangelical circle, William, I'm sorry, Jacques Lefebvre, showed up also in Strasbourg. You remember old Jacques Lefebvre. He was the man we started with originally that had traveled down to Italy uh, and was caught up in, the, in the, the, the revival of the Greek language and began studying the New Testament in the original Greek. Well, Lefebvre and Farrell, you remember, were very fast friends. They had been converted more or less together. Well, now they were reunited in Strasbourg and Farrell was so happy to see uh, Lefebvre, he said this, Do you remember, Jacques, do you remember what you once said to me when we were both sunk in darkness? William, he said, God will renew the world and you will see it. And then Farrell said to him, and here's the beginning of what you told me. We're seeing it unfold before our very eyes. Well, they both lived in the same house there in Strasbourg, spending much time with Bucer, uh, until Farrell, shortly thereafter, uh, who burned apostolically, if you will, with missionary zeal. He was very much like the Apostle Paul in this way, moving from one town, being persecuted in it, moving on to another, declaring the gospel with boldness. Uh, and, and we would not be improper to say often with rashness and some imprudence mixed in. We have the human element here, and there's no way to escape it. And it's always a blemish on the pure glory of the gospel. Uh, but nonetheless, it was the gospel in its simplicity that he was preaching with, with incredible boldness. It's hard to believe. And we'll look at him some uh, next week also um, and the week after that in conjunction with Calvin because those two became partners in the work of the gospel and very fast friends. Both had an impetuous personality. Abusers, as we'll see later on, uh, strongly recommended um, after their catastrophe the first time around in Geneva, which we will get to in the coming weeks. After that, Bucer very wisely recommended that in their future life of ministry, they don't work together because they, they were too much the same personality and they encouraged one another in their impetuosity and sometimes over rashness. So he said it's best to, to separate and mix with somebody that's the opposite of you so that you can balance each other out. Bucer had very, very much wisdom. All right, so... Uh, Let's move on then. Farrell, as I said, we're going to discover he soon left Strasbourg and went, traveled south, and we will follow him later on. But at this very time when all this was going on, uh, we want to bring in John Calvin. He's a young man at this point. He's still a student at the University of Paris. 
in these years, uh, in the mid to late 1520s. He's continuing his studies there, uh, learning the arts, and also learning to despise the doctrines of the evangelicals, that, that, the, the seditious scurvy, again, if you will, to, to semi-quote Erasmus. He was learning that these were the men and the women that you needed to be aware of. So he was being established in popery, effectively, at the University of Paris. Davigny describes him at this time as a, as a young 16-year-old student of middle stature, sallow features with piercing eye. He comprehended everything with inconceivable facility of perfect simplicity, order, and moderation, quiet and serious during his lessons, never sharing in the amusements of his schoolfellows, holding himself aloof and filled with horror at sin. He would often reprimand their disorders with severity. Sixteen years old. Uh, so um, they had a nickname for him. Uh, he, he was already earning a reputation, and they called him, his fellow grammarians, I might add, called him the accusative case. <laughs> and he lived up to his reputation. All right, so uh, let, let's leave Calvin, because we'll spend much time with him in the coming weeks. In June of the next year then, in 1526, an imperial diet was called in the German city of Spire. This is not the 1529, the second. This is the first one, uh, which ended fairly inconclusively. I just want to say a word or two about this. Uh, you remember the Edict of, of Worms that had declared Luther an outlaw and uh, instructed inflexibly all the princes of the German states to not give him any harbor, not to give him any refuge, no retreat, no food, nothing, to chase him out and turn him in if you could catch him. That was the Edict of Worms. That was five years earlier. Well, what had been going on all these five years? I mean, Luther seems to be sliding by just fine. Well, the, the princes were largely disregarding that edict of Worms. Uh, the people of Germany were eating up the doctrines of Luther, uh, largely coming through his 1522 translation of the Bible into the German language. And so people were reading the doctrines in Scripture for themselves. The leaven of Luther, the Pope's men said, sets all the people of Germany in a ferment. Well, it, you could call it the leaven of Luther, but again, it, it's more proper to call it the leaven of Holy Scripture in the language of the people. They were reading it in their own households by the fireside, and they were seeing exposed before their very eyes all of the tyranny of Rome, the superstitions. Was, this is not in the Bible. Just like Lefebvre had discovered when he read his Greek Testament, Luther had discovered, Melanchthon had discovered, Pharaoh had discovered, and now the common folks who could barely read were discovering it. For themselves, So that, that was the leaven that uh, the Pope's men were concerned about. Well, one of the reasons this diet aspire was called, it wasn't the only reason, but one major reason was to enforce this edict and to punish the offenders, to finally hammer down and get things straight, because things they saw were getting out of hand. Well, the German princes appeared with their faces like they were not prepared to compromise whatsoever, regardless of the cost. It really, we're, we're, we're entering from 26 to 29, this great period of resistance, uh, in insistence on the religious liberty in spite of the law of the land. Well, the emperor, who, who wasn't there, he sent his brother Ferdinand. He could see that things were not very amenable, and uh, he himself was having a difficult time with the pope, against the forces of the Turks, 
the Muslims were coming in from the east. He needed unity in the, in, within Christendom. And so he was not prepared to push this edict too hard on princes that were not willing to concede the point. So he saw the futility. He saw the danger of enforcing the edict. And therefore, he changed his tactics. This is what he said. He said, let us bring back Luther's partisans by mildness. So he jumped to the other side, thought, okay, if we can be mild with them, maybe we'll win some by a little bit of friendship, kind of like Nehemiah's opponents tried to do, if you remember, when he was building the wall. At first, they tried friendship, and it didn't work, and then they became stout enemies. Well, the emperor is doing it kind of backwards. First enemy, and now he's trying to be their friend, whatever it takes. Well, each state, he said, for the time being, he said it ambiguously, so it was capable of being misunderstood, uh, he said it ambiguously, but the point was each state should use its own prerogative. The prince of every state would determine the religion, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, within all of the, the uh, Holy Roman Empire. Well, you see here the first glimmer of religious liberty at a huge institutional level. And uh, it was moving ahead by fits and starts, mo- mostly fits, but we, we, see it, we see it developing. So it's a really great moment in the history, not just of the Reformation, but of the West in general. Well, for the next three years then, from 1526 to 1529, a relative peace prevailed in the empire. Uh, Evangelical sentiments among the people grew more and more deeply rooted. So it it wasn't going to be something that was easy to, to, to reverse. In fact, as history has shown, it was impossible to reverse it. Well... In the spring then, three years later, 1529, a new diet was convened in Spire. Again, this time, for political reasons, there was unity now between him and the Pope. He was adamant. He was inflexible. The princes are going to submit. We don't need their support anymore because the Pope and I are united. Well, the princes were commanded to give up their own interpretation of Scripture as they could read it for themselves in their Bibles. You're going to abide by the interpretation of the church, that is, the pope, essentially. This is, this is the same uh, clash that Luther had at the Diet of Worms, if you remember. It's like, are you going to, to think that your interpretation is the right one when all of the host of Christendom says, no, you're wrong, this is the one? And Luther said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not submit. Well, essentially, this is what the princes did. Now, not just one man standing alone, but all of the leading princes of the Holy Roman Empire. I I shouldn't say all. I'm saying all. It was not all. There was a division among them. But the majority of them were of this evangelical stamp. So they were commanded to submit. All is over, it was told them. All is over. Submission is all that remains. Well, they did not submit. Instead, they registered a historic protestation. Uh, The date was April 19th, 1529. Davigny says, at this point, the Reformation had taken a bodily form. It was Luther alone who had said no at Worms. But now churches and ministers, princes and people said no at the Diet of Spire. And I want to read uh, part of this, at least, here. Uh, This is what they said, again, in part. This is not by any means the entire protestation. We reject the yoke that is put upon us, say the princes seeing that there is no sure doctrine but such as is conformable to the word of God. 
that the Lord forbids the teaching of any other doctrine, that each text of the Holy Scriptures ought to be explained by other and clearer texts, and that this holy book is in all things necessary for the Christian, easy of understanding and calculated to scatter the darkness. Now, we should stop here and notice two very prominent Protestant doctrines with regard to the Scripture. One is this last phrase, well, almost last phrase, easy of understanding. Well, Peter himself says in the Scriptures, not everything is easy to understand. Paul writes some hard things, Peter says, that unstable men rest to their own and to others' destruction. So, they do not mean this in the absolute broadest sense of the word easy. But what they're expressing here, and it's expressed in many other places in Protestant documents at the time, they're speaking of what's called technically the perspicuity of Scripture, the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, which perspicuity in English comes from the Latin word, or the Latin word that they wrote down was claritas. Claritas, so it's clear, clarity. That's what perspicuity means. In other words, it is the doctrine that the scripture is amenable as God meant for it to be. As he spoke to mankind, he spoke in a, perspic- in, in, in a perspicuous, no, a perspicacious way. I say he's speaking per- perspicaciously, therefore the language of scripture is perspic... Never mind. <laughs> it's clear. Yes. These are difficult words. That's why we don't use it. So... <laughs> But the point is that it's amenable, as God intended it for, to be. It's harmonious with the human mind as he made our mind. It does not mean that it just falls off of the page, totally developed for our understanding. We, we know there's many scriptures that speak of, I can think of Proverbs, where, where Solomon says, if you cry out for understanding, if you dig for it as silver, if you search for it, uh, then you will find the fear of God. Then you will understand the knowledge of the Most High. So there, there is a work that's involved, and they're not precluding that when they say it's easy of understanding. They simply mean that it is not, as Moses said about the law of God, it's not across the sea. We don't have to go over there to get it. It's here in front of our eyes. Now, what I'm saying here is what, what Luther would have called, when he talked about the perspicuity of Scripture, when he wrote to Erasmus uh, in The Bondage of the Will, he said it's twofold. There's two aspects of the perspicuity of Scripture. One is internal, the other is external. I'm speaking of the external perspicuity of Scripture. That is, again, the human mind and the Scripture. There's, there, the Scripture is not ambiguous. It says what it means, and the human mind is capable of grasping it externally. Internally, that, that, this is crucial. Internally is, in essence, what Paul referred to when he said that... Uh, the natural mind receiveth not the things of God, for they are foolishness unto him. But God has revealed these things that he's freely given to us by his spirit, by his spirit. So there's, there's, there's the necessity of the spirit in order to understand the things of, of the gospel in the scripture. That's the internal perspicuity. So we have to, we have to understand they're related, but keep them distinct. We, we can't just have a person without the Spirit opening the Scriptures and understanding the things of the Gospel. He'll laugh at them, he'll mock them, say this is ridiculous, it doesn't make sense, it defies common sense. Uh, but the moment that the Lord, and we can remember this in, in uh, Luke chapter 24, when, it, when the Lord opened their understanding 
uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then the people in the upper room there. He opened their understanding that they would understand the things in the scriptures. Before that, there was an external perspicuity, certainly, because they had human minds made in God's image, but their minds were darkened naturally. So we have to keep these two things in mind. One of the ways that scripture is externally perspicuous, the way that in our study we understand it, is expressed in this earlier statement here in the protestation, that each text of the Holy Scriptures ought to be explained by other and clearer texts. This is called the analogy of faith. This is how we do it. Some texts are hard to understand, and perhaps they do seem ambiguous. So we begin to search the Scriptures for other related texts that speak to the same thing. And lo and behold, some of them are clear, and they actually interpret the harder to understand passages. This is called the analogy of faith. Zwingli had talked about it when he began preaching in Zurich. He said this, if you remember. He said, I'm going to preach, sounding the depths, comparing one scripture with another, and seeking understanding by constant and earnest prayer. That's crucial. Seeking understanding by constant and earnest prayer. To think we can understand scripture apart from seeking the aid of God by the Holy Spirit is folly. And, and it is pomposity, actually. Uh, so, uh, that's enough of that. We're not turning this into a study on the doctrines of scriptural interpretation, but I just wanted to point these, things, these two things out, because here they are, right at the beginning of things in the Reformation. Um, well, I won't take time to read the rest, except at the end, after the little dots down towards the end, right under the picture, they say, we protest before God our only creator, preserver, redeemer, and savior, and who will one day be our judge as well as before all men and all creatures that we, for us and for our people, neither consent nor adhere in any manner whatsoever to the proposed decree in anything that is contrary to God, to his holy word, to our right conscience, and to the salvation of our souls. We protest before God. Well, that's, that's, that's where Protestants got their name, from this protestation, protestation. That's where we got our names. This was written by the princes. That's right. Yes. The princes of, of Germany. Do we know which or which number of them actually this? We could find out. I did not take the time to do that, but I'm, I'm quite sure that, that the details are there. That's true. Yeah, and that's a good point. That, mm-hmm. That's right. That, that's right. Independent-minded princes who are shoving off the yoke of Rome that's trying to intrude on their sovereignty. Yes, there was a mixture. And, uh, but obviously, these mm-hmm. words are awesome. They are. And so yes. Them had yeah. The <laughs> y- y- yes. Yeah. We can give them the benefit of the doubt, certainly, when yeah. words like this are written. Yeah. Yeah. But it is. It's a very important point to realize we're talking about men who are operating in the religious sphere with all kinds of motives that are going on. And God knows them. We, we, we look at the fruit and judge as best as we can, and that's all that we can do. Okay, well, let's, let's move on from here then. Uh, this was a great victory for the Protestants, uh, this protestation, but it wasn't without grave danger because the forces of the papacy and Rome now were combined. They were poised for war to put down this rebellion, Melanchthon at this time says, This is a great event that has just taken place, but it is pregnant with dangers. All the pains of hell oppress me. All that remains for us to do now 
is to call upon the Son of God. Here was Melanchthon, again, always, always somewhat fearful uh, and lacking the kind of confidence that Luther and here at this time these princes certainly were displaying. Well, it was this danger that, that Melanchthon was expressing that led now to the colloquy of Marburg. One of the princes, who was a very close friend with Melanchthon, in fact, we could trace his conversion, insofar as we know that it was a conversion, to Melanchthon's influence and friendship with him. And this was Philip of Hesse. Hesse, one of the German states. Philip realized we need a defensive alliance. We, we need to come together as Protestants. Otherwise, we will, we will lose everything to Rome and the empire. Well, there was one obstacle preventing this alliance. One obstacle. And that was the disagreement between Luther and Zwingli on the Lord's Supper. One article in the Lord's Supper. They, they could not come together. On this, And this was largely because of Luther's intransigence on this point. We know Luther was an intransigent man. And uh, we see it most clearly uh, in its negative light here as they tried to come together on this article on the Lord's Supper. Both men rejected the, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which in essence was that a priest recites prescribed words and thereby uh, transforms, transubstantiates the substance of the bread and the wine into the physical corporeal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And then he offers it up as a re-sacrifice to God. And those parishioners partake. This is the Mass. They partake. And this is how you have and maintain your eternal life. If you absent yourself from this holy sacrament, as they call it, uh, you have no eternal life in you. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son in his flesh and blood physically has not life. That was their view, and it is their view to this very day. It's superstition and it's idolatry. I don't hesitate to say. Hopefully every single one of us in here don't hesitate to say. But that was the view. Neither one of these men held that. Zwingli, on the one hand, denied all physical presence whatsoever. All physical presence whatsoever of Christ in the supper. Though in his divine nature, Christ is everywhere, yet in his humanity, he's in one place only. That's at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where Jesus Christ in his glorified flesh resides right now. And keeping to the rules of human nature, he can only be in one place at one time. In his humanity, though in his divinity, he's, he's everywhere, and therefore he's with us spiritually in the supper as we partake by faith, spiritually. Luther, on the other hand, held that Christ's divine nature communicated his omnipresence to his human nature. Okay, this was what he called the communicatio idiomatum. Uh, you're, tr you're transferring the attributes of one nature into another nature. This, this, for the most part, Protestants do not accept. Lutherans do. And because of that, he said, Christ is physically present in the Lord's Supper. Not as a re-sacrifice to God, but what God is giving to us. We don't understand it, but he's there. Uh, it's not a sacrifice, and it's not transformed it's not like it wasn't there and then it is because of the priest's incantation. It's always there because he's always everywhere. It's a mystery we can't comprehend, but we just, we just leave it there and don't try to understand it. That was his view. Well, this was the breach between Luther and Zwingli. Luther's view, by the way, was called consubstantiation. That is, it's with the element. It's with, it doesn't turn into it, but it's with it always, just like he's everywhere with everything. In him all things consist. This is how Luther would have understood that, that term. Well, this was the breach that Philip was trying to mend at this time. He invited them to his castle at Marburg. 
uh, along with other Protestant leaders, Bucer in Strasbourg, Echolampadius, you remember, uh, in Basel. Both men, Bucer and Echolampadius, had been won over from Luther's view to Zwingli's view. So Luther, Luther and Melanchthon, who he brought with him also, uh, were the only two that held to this consubstantiation view. So on the other side, you had Zwingli, you had Echolampadius, and you had Bucer. So you had these five men coming together. It's a great, great, great moment. Well, Zwingli was eager for the meeting. He said, I am convinced that if we meet face to face, the splendor of truth will illumine our eyes. Arise, O Christ, and shine upon us. For while we contend, we too often forget to strive after holiness, which you require of us all. It's a wonderful prayer. So Zwingli arrived along with Luther, Melanchthon, Bucer, Echolampadius at the very, very end of September 1529. The debate began first thing in the morning, October 2nd. It was a Saturday, October 2nd, in the castle's main hall. So a table was set up in the main hall with a a, a nice tablecloth on it. Some say it was green. I don't know. Photography back then had only black and white, so we we don't know what color it was. Uh, the five men took their seats around the table with, with advisors behind them, and then there was an audience in the hall. The chairs lined up along the wall, so everybody's watching while these five giants of the Reformation uh, go at it. Well, Luther started, he, he stood up immediately and took a piece of chalk, and he wrote on the tablecloth in Latin, Hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. Those are the Latin words. Hoc est corpus meum. Christ has said, says Luther, this is my body. Let them show me that a body is not a body. I reject common sense, carnal arguments, and mathematical proofs. God is above mathematics. We have the word of God. We must adore it and perform it. Well, that's Luther's opening statement. And this is fairly truncated. We're just going to run through a narrative, a dialogue, very quickly here. Uh, it's not by any means everything that transpired. It's the, the, I'm trying to get the gist of it. Well, Echolampadius was the first to respond to Luther's opening statement. It cannot be denied, said Echolampadius, that there are figures of speech in the word of God. As John is Elijah, the rock was Christ. I am the vine. These are figures of speech. This is my body is a figure of the same kind. Luther retorted, we must pay attention to him who speaks and not to what he says. I've never been able to figure out that. <laughs> We must pay attention to him who speaks and not to what he says. God speaks, men, worms, listen. God commands, let the world obey. Let us all together fall down and humbly kiss the word. We must believe and do. Now Zwingli jumped in. We must explain scripture by scripture. There's that analogy of faith. Jesus says that to eat his flesh corporeally or physically profits nothing. The soul is fed with the spirit and not with the flesh. Luther simply pointed to the words on the tablecloth, this is my body. He kept repeating it. The devil himself, he said, shall not drive me from that. To seek to understand is to fall away from faith. Zwingli persisted. But doctor, he said, St. John explains how Christ's body is eaten spiritually. So you must stop singing the same song. Luther, you wish to stop my mouth by arrogancy. That passage has nothing to do here. Zwingli responded, pardon me, doctor, but that passage breaks your neck. That was about as physical as they got, uh, maybe a little bit more. Tempers were, were raising uh, to a pitch. 
threatening to get out of hand. Philip stood up, said it's lunchtime. So, so they, they all dismissed for lunch. After lunch, the debate resumed right where they left off. Zwingli looked right at Luther and said, I oppose you with this article of our faith. He ascended into heaven. It's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. He ascended into heaven. If Christ is in heaven as regards his body, how can he be in the bread? The word of God teaches us that he was like his brethren in all things. Therefore, he cannot be in several places at once. Luther, I care little about mathematics. Zwingli, this is no question of mathematics, but of St. Paul, who writes to the Philippians, morphine dulu labon. That's Greek for uh, he took on him the form of a servant. He took on him the form of a servant. Luther just kept pointing at the table. Most dear sirs, since my Lord Jesus Christ says, hoc est corpus meum, I believe that his body is really there. Zwingli was growing impatient. But if it is in heaven, he said, it cannot be in the bread. You are reestablishing popery. And at this point, he sprang up from his chair right into the face of Luther across the table. Well, now it was time for supper. So Philip broke off the meeting for supper. Next day, they, they, they retired to their chambers. The next day, Sunday morning, Echolampadius began to enlist the church fathers, just as Zwingli had done in the Zurich Disputation, if you remember. He began quoting from the church fathers. And he said, if we quote from the fathers, it, it's, it's, it's not because we're trying by them to establish our doctrine, but we're just simply trying to free our doctrine from the reproach of novelty. That is something we're inventing. We're not inventing it. It's in the scripture and the fathers support us. Luther said that he had supporters as well from the fathers. Uh, Echolampadia said, name them and we will prove they are of our opinion. Luther said, we will not. And then he grabbed the tablecloth and tore it from the table and said, see, and he's holding it up there, his chalk marks. He said, see, this is our text and you have not yet driven us from it as you had boasted. We care for no other proofs. Now, someone in the audience called for a truce. Luther said, I only know one way to have a truce and that is, let our adversaries agree with us and believe what we do. We cannot, said Echolampadius. Well then, said Luther, I abandon you to God's judgment and I pray that he will enlighten you. Now, it was getting very, very serious. Very, very serious. It was now Sunday night. The lamps were lit so that they could continue. Well, Zwingli had grown very silent over this last exchange. And finally, in front of them all, he just he burst into tears. It was a very sobering moment. Philip saw it and he stood up and pleaded. He said, sirs, you cannot separate like this. He invited them all to get up from the table and leave the audience and come to his own private chamber. So they all filed into the private chamber with Philip. And here, Zwingli, as calmly as he could, said, let us confess our union in all things, all things in which we agree. And as for the rest, let us remember that we are brothers. There will never be peace between the churches if, while we maintain the grand doctrines of salvation by faith, if we cannot differ on these secondary points. Then looking directly at Luther, he said, very touchingly, there is no one on earth with whom I more earnestly desire to be united than with you. Philip said, acknowledge, acknowledge them as brothers, Martin. Zwingli again lost his composure and with tears streaming down his face, 
he, he, he walked over to Luther and held out his hand. And Luther pulled up his hands. I don't know literally if he did, but he backed up, utterly refused. He said, you have a different spirit. You do not belong to the communion of the Christian church. We cannot acknowledge you as brethren. And he was speaking not only to Zwingli, but to the other men as well. Nobody knew what to do. Just dead silence. There was Luther, and there was Zwingli. They just stared in silence. Finally, Bucer, who hadn't been partaking of the conversation, uh, almost too late, he stood up and looked at Luther. Remember, Luther is his spiritual father in the faith from a number of years back. He said to Luther, We think your doctrine strikes at the glory of Jesus Christ, who now reigns at the right hand of the Father. But seeing that in all things you acknowledge your dependence on the Lord, we look at your conscience, which compels you to receive the doctrine you profess, and we do not doubt that you belong to Christ. Well, that soothed things down immediately. This, this attempt at some kind of reconciliation uh, it saved everything from virtually a total collapse. And everybody could see Luther's face soften at this last statement from, from Bucer. Uh, it didn't change his mind, but his Christian affections were, were visibly softened. He reached out his hand. And he said, looking at Zwingli, I offer you the hand of peace and charity. Well, we'll cut off the narrative there. That effectively ended uh, the colloquy. It was, uh, as far as its stated end, it, it was a total failure. They, they didn't achieve reconciliation. They did not achieve unity. Uh, they signed their names to 14 of the 15 articles. You can see that in, in your handout. The first name is Luther's. Uh, Melanchthon's is the third name. Echolampadius is the seventh on the list. And then Zwingli right below him and Bucer, the ninth, uh, right, right below him. Well, this was Marburg. Uh, it's all we have to say about Marburg, except it was a crucial chapter in the history of the church. William Cunningham, and, and you have his quote, a larger part of it there in your handout, said, Luther's refusal to shake hands with Zwingli, which led that truly noble and thoroughly brave man to burst into tears, was one of the most deplorable and humiliating, but at the same time solemn and instructive exhibitions of the deceitfulness of sin and of the human heart the world has ever witnessed. Which brings us full circle back to our opening text. Cease ye from man. Cease ye from man, whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? So, what, what's the lesson we learn? Luther showed openly, not just to those at the colloquy, but obviously we're, we're looking at it now. So, he displayed openly to the entire watching church of every age. We can all see it. Naked and open, as it were. Uh, what he showed was the truth of what he often confessed throughout his life. You can hardly read a line in Luther or a page anyhow without coming across confessions like this. No man, he said, was ever able to discover or comprehend his own wickedness since it is without limit, without limit, bottomless. And this is true, but Luther adds, and this is the great point that we get from Luther, always, always, it, it if you will, is the one note that we find him constantly singing. He said, this is so, that is seeing the depths of our wickedness, this is so that you may know, in turn, that the works of God done for you in Christ are immeasurable and without limit. That's the foil. Well, 
After Marburg, we'll end with this, an epilogue of sorts. Zwingli and Echolampadius had only two more years to live. You, you see their deaths recorded on the timeline. Zwingli, very shortly thereafter, was caught up in the civil war between the cantons of Switzerland, the Protestants versus the Catholics. Protestants were shaking off, trying to shake off the yoke of papal tyranny. Uh, Zwingli was killed in battle, hit by a stone in the head, thrown down, pierced through with the lance. After they, words, they took his dead body, quartered it, cut it up into four pieces uh, for treason, for treason, and then they burnt his body for heresy. Uh, that's the end of Zwingli. Echolampadius, his close friend, heard back in Basel, he cried, Alas, Zwingli, my right arm has fallen under the blows of cruel enemies. But even while Echolampadius was mourning, the plague had uh, risen up in Basel, and uh, Echolampadius was, uh, fell ill, and six weeks later, after Zwingli's death, he himself died of the plague. His last words were this, out of Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. And we will end with that, Echolampadius' last words, and uh, we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you, as we always do, and we always ought to, for the great things that you have freely given us in Jesus Christ, which you have shown us by your Holy Spirit, whom you've given to us. In his name we pray. Amen.